Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Now, there's been a lot going on in almost all of the news for the month of November. But unfortunately, one of the biggest things that hasn't been discussed is something that November is supposed to be associated with. November is Family Domestic Violence, Family Violence Prevention Month. There we go. I already got the, you screwed it up, but you fixed it. Uh, and that's a conversation that's been buried in part because we are still recovering from the municipal elections, but also in part because there is so much going on. But the real tragedy is that so much of the stuff that's going on directly relates to this topic. So we wanted to do what we could to bring this topic back to the forefront and provide a little bit of a reminder as well as provide some information. So we are very excited to be joined by social worker, activist, Advocate, sometimes politician, <laughs> uh, and a good friend of mine, Lana Bentley. Lana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to be here, Nate. It's nice to see you again. So to start with, mm-hmm. can you just give a little bit of your background in regards to uh, family violence, domestic violence, all of that kind of stuff, and I will enjoy a sip of this fine coffee. <laughs> it does look like we're in a coffee commercial, doesn't it? Um, Well, thank you for having me, Nate, and hello to your very sizable audience with The Breakdown. So thank you for having me and sharing your platform. All three of you better be paying attention. (laughs) And sometimes I'm one of those viewers. (laughs) All two of you better be paying attention. That's right, that's right. I'll share this with my parents and hopefully they'll watch. Um, So in terms of my background, I'm a registered social worker and I'm a clinical social worker um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, I got my degree and I worked as, um, a family therapist. And so, um, anytime you're working with families and working with kiddos, um, in the area of mental health, uh, certainly, um, safety in families is something you screen and assess for. And so, um, that became a pretty big part of my practice. Um, and so over the years I've worked with folks throughout the lifespan, not so much older adults though. I I certainly don't want to overstate my experience with um, elder abuse, but, um, I've had the occasion to work with folks impacted by domestic violence. So, uh, ranging all the way from kiddos who've, um, witnessed abuse or experienced, uh, other forms of maltreatment, um, to folks of all genders who would self-describe as either victims or survivors and as well those who perpetrate uh, violent behavior, and that's that's part of uh, a unique part of my work. I would say is is working with folks who um, have been mandated uh, for treatment um, to uh, address uh, their use um, of impulsive violent behavior and hopefully turn things around. Okay, now I want to I want to get into the the treatment side of the conversation a little yeah. bit farther down the road. Sure, because I think that's that's an important part that a lot of anger often potentially drives people to to either overlook or minimize. Okay. Um, but before we get there, when somebody says uh, family violence, yeah. uh, or if they misspeak and say domestic violence and, and get them right. the name of the month all wrong, what, is, what does that mean to you as somebody who's worked in the field? Sure. Well, family violence is a term that encompasses all different forms of violence in relationships. And so um, maybe I'll start with elder abuse because we don't typically start there, uh, but family violence can include elder abuse. It can also include, include child abuse and maltreatment. And I think the form of violence that um, I, I do think it is 
um, a really positive step that we're talking about this form of violence more is the violence that occurs between adults in partnered relationships, be they um, cohabitating, non-cohabitating, um, currently in relationship or separated, etc. So that, that is where you hear the term domestic violence. Um, it does more so refer to those adult-to-adult -adult connections, uh, but sometimes people will use the term domestic violence and they'll be thinking about kiddos um, or the elderly. Um, so that's what family violence is, is it's an umbrella term uh, that encapsulates all those different forms of violence. And I think it, it, is, it is good that there is growing recognition that violence transcends just adult-to-adult -adult partner relationships because uh, I think that that unfortunately um, the stigma of, of family violence writ large is quite um, challenging and that it stops people from getting help but I also think sometimes there's different forms of shame Nate that accompany um, you know saying my adult kids who are supposed to care for me as you know they're um, they abuse me or sibling to sibling abuse or, or, or whatever the case might be. So um, I think it's great that we have a month that is shining a light um, on violence in all forms of, of family relationships. One of the conversations that happens a lot is people try to ask why mm -hmm. does this family violence happen? Are there common threads that exist or is it who knows why? Like. What, what, what does the evidence say? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, for people of my age group, I, I won't provide too much detail on what that is, but certainly... It's like 25, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Generation Z. There you sure. go. Um, but certainly when I was um, probably 12, like I guess grade 7 or somewhere in high school, we learned about the cycle um, of violence and we learned about um, dating violence, though they didn't really call it that. And at that time, we weren't really given much of an explanation others than here's how you recognize it. Um, I think the origins, like if you look at the dominant theories, Nate, that explain or attempt to explain um, violence in families, the feminist, um, the feminist model would say that um, violence in uh, personal relationships at, at the individual level is connected to a broader structure um, of patriarchy and power imbalance at the societal level. And that then manifests in individual relationships where one person is asserting their dominance over another. Um, and for many years, I think that that feminist model um, would have spoken to um, gender inequality um, being at the heart of, of what drives um, that violence in uh, relationships. Uh, now, I, I think it is, um, though I'm sure some of your viewers will say, well, hang on, that doesn't explain it all, and, and, and they would be correct. However, um, I do think that the feminist community, and particularly the activist community, um, certainly played a key role in advancing this issue and advocating for the current resources that we have now. I think it was 1973 when the first five emergency women's shelters opened in Canada. And, um, you know, while it's unfortunate that we have a need for them, thank goodness they're there. And um, that movement, that women's movement, that feminist movement, that really is what paved the way for the sector that we now have. Over time, though, Nate, things do, it, they do evolve. 
um, and they do change. And the more we know, um, the more we can adapt our services to better meet the needs of people impacted by violence. And so what we know now is that certainly, um, I, I do think that gender inequality plays a role. And um, with the birth of intersectional feminism, which was born from Kimberly Crenshaw, an African-American theorist. Um, so I think that's important to mention because I think sometimes people forget where it came from. But, um, and I'm by no means a feminist historian. Please don't let the shirt fool you. This is just one of my favorite t-shirts from my friend Sarah Storr. But, um, but with an intersectional analysis, um, we know that beyond just inequality and inequity based on gender, we see that race and sexual orientation and gender expression, even different levels of ability and economic, um, economic position, all those different forms of identity influence how violence um, shows up as well. And so um, I think uh, there's a lot more work to be done to understand how domestic violence and family violence impact people um, from different communities. Um, and most certainly, um, I think gender-based violence as it relates to Indigenous women is an area of particular concern. So missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a member of the Indigenous community, but as somebody who humbly walks on a pathway uh, to try and get towards um, some, some form of helpfulness and allyship, um, I, I do want to um, express that today. Um, but I, I share all this in a long-winded way to say we do know that the feminist analysis still has a place in explaining um, family violence. I think now, though, in 2021, we'd probably be looking more so at an intersectional feminist understanding of family violence because uh, for women, well, I shouldn't say for women, but for all folks from the disabled community, uh, BIPOC people, um, people of affluence, people um, of different economic means, um, etc., um, all those groups face their own unique challenges of family violence. So that's the feminist piece. <laughs> now let's look at the others. Um, certainly, Nate, now with every, and I know you have a healthcare background, so some of this, some of this you already know, but, <laughs> but you're being very polite and asking me about it. Um, we do know um, that mental health and substance misuse um, are problematic when it comes to engaging in healthy behavior in relationships. And we also know that when we're breaking down why does violence happen, it's like there's many different factors. There's within the individual, there's the community that the individual is most readily connected to, and then there's the bigger picture. And so certainly in the bigger picture, Nate, you'd be looking at social policies, institutions, um, and I call them unhelpful attitudes and belief systems uh, that make it possible for violence to persist. At the community level, um, we know that there are factors uh, that can prevent violence. If families are in communities uh, where there's a lot of social cohesion and inclusion, uh, where people are um, not having to manage um, issues um, of poverty, etc. Uh, neighborhoods that are well resourced where there's recreation, libraries, uh, good infrastructure, um, schools, um, access to education, all those things. And then at the individual level, we know that um, most certainly um, 
there are some folks who have uh, individual struggles which make it harder for them to regulate their emotion and their behavior so there's individual factors there's factors in the community the community level and then at the societal level and ultimately there are many pathways um, that could um, put somebody um, in alignment with violent behavior but i think the good news is uh, similarly it means there's many pathways and ways to help people out of that behavior okay. um, so certainly um, if, if, if you've grown up in a home environment where you've witnessed abuse, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're headed. Okay. And I think that is important, because uh, most certainly um, exposure um, to violence in the household, it's not helpful, but it doesn't necessarily need to characterize somebody's journey. And, and I know that's, uh, that's often a concern I hear is if my kid witnessed it, um, does that mean now that they're going to repeat these behaviors which they've witnessed? Um, certainly that is a possibility, Nate, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm, I'm happy to say I've, I've seen that not be the case um, in many instances. Okay. Does that answer your question? I think, I think it kind of does. I just want to take one step back because the one of the, the barriers that I think that some people have with these kind of conversations, especially when we get into the... The, the specific theory mm -hmm. uh, and kind of backing things up um, is is a little bit of the jargon and I know okay. that there are there are some people who struggle with words like intersectionality and okay. so my <laughs> yeah. my understanding and this is where I'm going to ask you to tell me sure. that I'm wrong um, if I am uh, but my understanding is intersectionality is kind of, and you, 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 you switched your phrasing up at the end, but it's, it's different factors. So different people have different factors kind of stacked um, that are going to not obviously guarantee any specific outcome, but they are going to influence uh, the, the obstacles that a person potentially has to overcome and the degree of difficulty with which they're going to have to navigate those obstacles. Is that a fair... Well, I mean, speaking of jargon, <laughs> so, so um, if, if we're looking at the interplay between individual community and broader societal factors, um, the overarching term that's used to describe that, I don't know if it's torial or toral, but multifactorial. Or multifactorial. Let's go with multifactorial, just because. <laughs> okay. Probably easier to pronounce. So, so, so somebody in the comment section will be like, "Lana, it's this." So, 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 so basically, um, there's multiple factors, and 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 we would describe individual factors as micro level. We would describe those. Uh, when you have groups of individuals in community, that would be meso level, and then the bigger picture government, social policy, you know, ideology and institutions, that would be macro level. And so the interplay of all those different factors would be multifactorial. And that is now, um, for some, that is uh, a very broad net to possibly explain um, different forms or manifest or how people. Um, you know, the multifactorial approach is one way of looking at how violence happens. And, and I share that because prior to that, there were, there were very rigidly defined categories in ages. So there were psychological factors, sociological fact, uh, theories, there were feminist theories. And at the end of the day, um, you know, you said sometimes politician. Well, I'm, I'm not a politician at all right now. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a woman. You, you dabble in politics. <laughs> yeah, I, exp 
a, a person who dabbles is in, yeah, 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 yeah. If every two to four years I dip my baby toe in the water, yeah, but, see, that counts. But you know, I, I, I think um, for me as somebody who's worked um, in acute care settings and somebody who's worked in community settings, um, the reason I personally, sorry, I'm touching my mic, but the reason I personally prefer to have an understanding of family violence where it encompasses all different kinds of factors um, is because I want to cast a broad net to make myself accessible to all different kinds of people. So I think when you subscribe to one very narrowly defined understanding of why violence happens in families, um, that can be limiting. And sometimes people will make assumptions of, well, I don't see myself in that theory, so I'm not going to access the help that I need. And for most of my professional life, I have worked um, in a clinical capacity or a micro-level capacity of helping individuals and families. So, um, you know, one of the things I said when I was leading um, a group for men who were accessing treatment for domestic violence was, I'm less concerned about how you got here. I'm just really glad you did. Okay. Because now we can do some really good work together um, and hopefully give you the tools to begin again if, if that is what you need to do to show up differently in your family, in your community, in your place of work. And how can you be a voice of health and wellness and peace and dignity um, versus where you're coming from now? Okay. Um... Now I want to talk about the the the, the treatment side of things, but yeah. before we do, I'm curious. Sure. One of the the conversations that I often hear uh, a lot of, mm -hmm. and and it's probably because of my own gender. Yeah. Uh, yes. Is there's a, it seems like there's a big push to recognize that, and I think this might be part of the reason why the term is family violence. Mm -hmm. um, that. While there is certainly a disproportionate amount of violence that's directed towards women, mm -hmm. it isn't only that. So there is abuse. Like the, the abuse can travel in all kinds of different directions, sure. and certainly there's 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 examples of spousal abuse where mm -hmm. the, the 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 female in the the relationship may very well be abusing the man, mm -hmm. um, or abusing. The same sex partner. Yeah, for sure. Like it, it, it's the the idea idea of these these binary relationships. I think is is mm -hmm. not helpful in this conversation. Um, yeah. But how how much of that have have you seen? I think um, I I do think that the conversation is evolving, and as it should. You know, when when I started training to be a family therapist a hundred years ago. Um, I, I do think that our language at the time reflected our limited understanding of the different forms that family can take. And although we talked about, you know, families are diverse, we weren't necessarily being inclusive of the LGBTQ2S plus community, nor were we being inclusive of other factors of identity that can really influence how a family functions. So, you know, I, I do get asked the question sometimes, um, is it even between men and women? And my response is, and this is, I am going to sound like 
kind of a frustrating, give you the, the frustrating therapist response, it depends. So, for sure. you know, I, I think maybe part of what we need to do, Nate, is unpack the term gender-based violence. So gender-based violence is violence that is perpetrated against a person because of their gender. Now, um, not gender-based violence is not synonymous with domestic or family violence, though family and domestic violence could be expressions of gender-based violence. So gender-based violence could include everything from um, potentially living in an area where there's a preferred gender of children, and if you're not that gender, the pregnancy is terminated. Um, trafficking, um, forcing children um, into marriages. Um, I, I don't want to use the term honor killing because I, I, I think it's, it's homicide. Um, really and truly, um, but I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that I don't understand the complexities um, surrounding that particular issue, but certainly um, those acts of honor killing do seem to be perpetrated um, against women and girls. And so um, there's a whole continuum across the lifespan of examples of gender-based violence and domestic violence um, and sexual assault um, can certainly be expressions of gender-based violence. And so the reason I share that is because two things can be true at once. I think we can hold space and recognize um, that women's experience, women and girls, and their experience of violence is highly problematic and disturbing, but that shouldn't prevent us, Nate, from recognizing that there are people of all different gender expressions um, who are negatively impacted. And I think family violence, as I mentioned earlier, um, also includes child maltreatment and abuse. And, and we know that that is not necessarily a gendered issue. Um, there are a lot of children who, unfortunately, um, the adults in their lives um, abuse or mistreat them. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think for me, working with men who were mandated for treatment was very helpful for me because um, it invited me to check my own bias and, and it kept me accountable and it made me more sensitive, not just to working with men, um, but to consider the stories and experiences of abuse and violence from people of all gender expressions. So um, here's the thing. <laughs> so here's the thing. If, and, and certainly I understand that there are people in the sector who might have um, very current and sophisticated data analysis capability that I don't. Um, so if I get this wrong, my apologies. But I think when we look at violence against men versus women, when men are subject to violence, it tends to be outside of the home. And so when women are subjected to violence, it does tend to be within the context of familial relationships. And so there are challenges and complexities. Um, I also think um, I, I, I wouldn't dare to pretend that I know um, the safety uh, concerns that non-binary or transgender folks experience, uh, but I know that there are certainly some unique challenges that um, uh, trans folks uh, face, um, both within the context of the family system and outside publicly. You know the harassment and abuse, um, and and you know threats of violence. So I I do think that un undoubtedly we know. Um, and isn't it awful that social issues are probably one of the only phenomena that don't discriminate? You know what I mean? Like, like it is. It is. We share our problem. We just <laughs> yeah. don't share the solution. Yeah, it's it's upsetting to me that of all the things that seem to have mastered 
true equality, it's social problems. Um, and so they don't discriminate, and I mean that in the perspective of uh, obviously through an intersectional lens, we know that there are different equity-seeking groups who have far more um, complicated trajectories in accessing supports for family violence, uh, but we also know that family violence can show up in any family system. And so, yeah, there, there absolutely are instances of men being on the receiving end of violent behavior. And I think if we look at the challenges um, faced within the LGBTQ2S plus community, I would say we need way more information. Um, I would imagine that throughout my career, I've probably worked with um, more people from the LGBTQ2S plus community around violence than I knew. Uh, and I say that because I'm, I'm not entirely sure if those folks felt comfortable and safe um, telling me or telling the programs that I oversaw um, that their partner um, was not, that this wasn't a heterosexual relationship. And I think, Nate, just to sort of tap into that, I, I think part of the problem is we tend to understand violence as, well, if you're big enough and tough enough, it ain't an issue for you. And so because men, um, and, and I don't believe that, but I, I think if we're just sort of socializing that idea a little bit more for the purposes of deconstructing and disproving it, but the assumption that women are smaller than men, men are bigger and stronger and should be able to take care of themselves. Um, I, I think that that framing of violence makes it tougher to recognize when you do have um, a self-identified man um, saying, well, this was my experience. And I, I think, you know, within relationships where it's two, two guys, I, I think some people struggle to appreciate that violence and abuse can happen there, A, uh, because, well, they're tough, so shouldn't they be able to physically stand up for themselves? And B, I think people don't yet appreciate that family violence is not just always physical or sexual assault. It can be mental, emotional, um, and I think before a physical assault takes place, there's other stuff that's happening to make that possible first. And so the emotional component and the psychological degradation that can also characterize um, you know, domestic violence would mean that even if somebody is big, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, yeah. the ability to navigate the threat of violence, that's still hard. And then I think with women, um, I, I do think that we're still, um, I, I do think optimism is justified. I, I think people are, are far more understanding and inclusive um, with their understanding of, of, of same-sex relationships. But I do think with women in, in, in those challenging scenarios, you know, I, I have heard from some clients who've identified as lesbian that, you know, well, we didn't want to tell the police because we thought they were going to laugh at us, you know, like girl fight, cat fight. So, so there, there's a lot of unhelpful assumptions that we have about gender. And I, I, I will say, um, I, I think sexism hurts everybody. <laughs> um, and I think it's very limiting and I think um, pain is pain. And so certainly, Nate, there is a gender analysis of this issue to be had, but not not in so far as saying this only impacts this segment of the population and if this other segment says it's happening to them it's not true or it's not 
it's not valid. I, I, I don't like that approach. I mean, the reason why I ask is because it, it seems to me mm -hmm. that the idea that any, any particular demographic can be excluded from being at risk of uh, family violence is, I'm going to go ahead and use the word naive. Uh, I think there's certainly some demographics that have higher risks for mm -hmm. sure. And I think there's certainly some demographics that probably have lower risks in comparison. Sure. Um, but it, one of the, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, is the, the notion that, well, because of this factor, whether it's, well, it's two men, so one of them couldn't possibly mm -hmm. be hitting each other, or it's two women, so one of them couldn't mm -hmm. possibly be hitting each other. Uh, I think that excluding the possibility of people experiencing family violence is a, a very, very dangerous approach. I mean, right. maybe, tell me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. to me, Whenever, whenever anyone brings up any some kind of indication mm -hmm. that they are experiencing any kind of family violence, mm -hmm. the only correct place to start is by saying, okay, um, and not saying, well, are you sure? Right. You know, like, yeah. like that kind of stuff or, or, or bringing... Or it's not physical, so it's not that bad. Yeah. yeah. Or, or bringing in any, any kind of preconceived notions because one of the things that, that I worry about is the possibility that somebody might be experiencing violence and they're not aware of it okay. because it's their norm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you're speaking to, Nate, at, at least how I'm interpreting that idea, is that one, one of the things that does tend to characterize relationships where violence is present is isolation. The less, the less people can see, um, the tougher it is to recognize, you know, holy Hannah, my relationship has changed and not for the better. And it's important to recognize that that change typically occurs over time. You know, I remember as a young woman growing up, um, I was certainly warned and educated against that stranger in the alley or that person in the nightclub that I should be vigilant for. And all those things, I think, are true. You want to be aware of your surroundings, but I got a lot less information about how violence develops within a partnered relationship or a dating relationship which was weird because I was then taught how to recognize it if it happens, like the actual violent explosion, mm -hmm. but wasn't given much language or framing around how it could occur over time. And so um, to your point, Nate, about um, the responses, okay, this is serious, and, and what about people who don't necessarily recognize that seriousness? I think that that's one of the high risk features of violent relationships is the isolation that occurs. And when you're isolated from others, it means you're isolated from different perspectives. And perspective is pretty huge when you're understanding your situation and the possible risk of safety. So, you know, when I talk about boundaries and healthy boundaries, you know, so if there was a line for this circle, for this table, some people would say, and the line represented boundaries, Nate, some people would say, well, a healthy boundary around a person, so if this is the person, and then there's a boundary around them, some people might say that line should be solid and thick. Okay. <laughs> Ain't nothing coming in, <laughs> getting past that boundary. I think what's challenging about that is that then nothing can leave. 
So a healthy boundary around an individual or a family wouldn't be a thick solid line where nothing can get in and nothing can get out, including support ideas and new ways of looking at issues. But it would be more like a dashed line. Okay. Does that make sense? Like a permeable barrier. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and nothing like if a boundary is too faint where I can barely see it, um, and it's too thick where nothing can get in or out. Um, that's not an effective boundary because an effective boundary around an individual or a family system is one that both protects and yet allows growth. And if we look now, like for example, with families where children are at risk of abuse, it does tend to be families where there's a high level of secrecy surrounding the family system, like nothing can get in and lay eyes, do you know what I mean, yeah. on that child? or um, there's no protection around the child. So um, when we're dealing with somebody who says this has happened to me, that, that, is, that takes a lot of personal strength to utter those words. And I think in my experience, you know, it's a mixed bag moment, I would call it. But when people say, I think this is happening to me, but I can't believe I'm that person. Okay. I never thought it would happen to a person like me. And certainly when you're responding, Nate, and I know you're a first responder, so you, you understand more than me, perhaps, the need to triage and, and you attend to what's most imminent. So we're probably not going to have those conversations if I'm your therapist around, what do you mean a person? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like those pieces of working through identity and patterns of behavior, like that's for another day. I need to work with you on your immediate safety and your wellness. But um, I, I think we all carry around ideas of who we should be and how things ought to be. And violence can be very disruptive for some family. Like it really shakes them to the core of either I never thought this would happen to me or to your point earlier, if somebody has constantly been surrounded by this, they may not see it as problematic. That's, yeah, like that's the way it's always been. So to have to have a concerned or supportive other say, let me tell you how this looks to you, right? That's the healthy boundary. <laughs> so now there's new information entering the system. To have somebody say, really? <laughs> like those are the moments, um, I think, of connection and curiosity and validation that could change somebody's life. And I also want to highlight, Nate, we're talking a lot about people who um, folks might use words like victim or survivor. Um, I, I do want to also hold some space as somebody who has worked with folks who engage in abusive behavior. Um, believe it or not, um, sometimes people are stunned when they get feedback about how their behavior came across. Okay. Now, with that said, one of the things that you've talked a lot about is... The, the fact that you've been involved in treatment. Right. So there is, and I'm, I'm answering a question that I'm pretty sure I already <laughs> know the answer to, asking the question I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to, but is, is treatment possible? Like I know that a lot of people will look at somebody who has perpetrated mm -hmm. domestic violence uh, or family violence and because of their own experiences mm -hmm. or because of how horrifying it is that somebody would would abuse positions or, or power imbalances um is treatment possible like can you 
I mean, I, I hate to use the cliche, <laughs> yeah. but one of the things that you hear a lot of stories of is is people staying in these dangerous relationships mm-hmm. because I can I can fix them. And one of the things that I, I'm curious about is where does the line exist between somebody staying in a toxic relationship because they believe that they can fix them and because that almost always ends catastrophically uh, and somebody being willing to and wanting to access treatment can, can I mean, the, to me it seems like the difference is, is if, if I decide that I want to fix you, mm-hmm. then I've made a decision, but you haven't, so I don't know how well it's going to take. Whereas if you decide that you want to go to treatment or, or you've been mandated to go to treatment, right. there's a different sort of level of acceptance of that process. Does that influence it? Like, so I guess my first question is, yeah. can the perpetrators of family violence be treated and recover? And secondary to mm-hmm. that, what, is that, what does that in your experience look mm-hmm. like? So a few things. Um, I, I am going to say it depends. And, yeah. and, and I think that, um, so first of all, Nate, I, I think if there's anybody watching your program today who is in a relationship with a partner or a family member who's engaging in violent behavior, um, I, I used to have an executive coach who said, don't honor your instincts, obey them. And so if there's any ounce of you that is feeling unsafe in your home environment, um, you don't have to sit with that by yourself. Um, And I will say um, the tough part about violent behavior is that there is a certain level of unpredictability. So just because something lethal hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it can't or won't. And nobody can predict that, which is why when it comes to safety, it is always better to overdo rather than underdo. So um, I I just want to put that out there because you you never know. And you have a big audience. So... um, Statistically speaking, there, there probably will be some people watching this conversation who are either in it or have been there. So um, now going, and I think you said you were going to post resources um, either in your show I'm going to post the resources that you give me to post. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Homework. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And, and there, there, there are many, and, and what you'll find is when you go to those websites, um, there's something called a safe exit button. So if you're in... in if, if you're worried about your family member seeing you, you can just click and then it takes you to the Weber page or some, something else nondescript. I think that's what most people use. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. Looking at the Weber. So, um, or, or sometimes it'll take you to a movie page or a shopping center page. But... It, it should be pictures of cats. Funny, <laughs> funny pictures of cats because everybody looks at that. But yeah, so so certainly, and I, and I don't want to... to, to to put anybody at risk, but certainly almost all of those websites have a safe exit button, which takes you to somewhere nondescript. Um, and so um, in terms of can people get better from using violent or abusive behavior, it depends. So there are different, I mean, ultimately I think change is possible for everybody, Nate, but what the change looks like will vary on the individual. So are mm-hmm. there some people who um, could have Um, an episode where they um, are super ineffective, they throw their laptop against the wall, the neighbor calls the police, Um, now that person is in some kind of counseling or therapy and they commit to working um, at a program and being very involved in their wellness and emotion regulation and they never do it again, sure. Um, Are there people whose violent behavior is restricted to certain contexts? 
yes, those folks exist as well. And are there some folks who are violent all the time? Yes, but, but a smaller, a smaller, um, like, like here's the thing, right? I, I think the challenge with relationship violence is that um, for many families where if we're looking at domestic violence, um, you'll hear partners say, when my partner's not being violent, they're, they're absolutely charming and loving and mm -hmm. they may even be a very active um, or doting parent. And so, um, you know, I think that's, that's what I said. That's why I referenced, you can't really predict it. <laughs> um, and, and most, most people are, are complicated and they're three dimensional, Nate. So, um, beyond violent behavior, um, there are instances where the person has other redeeming qualities, which makes it harder to discontinue the relationship. Because yeah. if it were violent 24 hours a day, um, that may certainly compel their partner to, to leave, but, but it's not, it's not simple. And so, yes. They said they were sorry. Yeah, you know, there, there can be some expressions of remorse. Um, and, and I don't want to discount that. And it may even be true that the person is sorry. That doesn't, however, mean that they're better equipped to manage their emotions and manage their behavior. Yeah. And for those whose um, use of violent or abusive behavior is intertwined with addictions, um, simply expressing remorse isn't going to be enough to manage uh, the addiction. So I, I think, yes, there is, optimism is justified for some folks, depending on who they are as an individual and depending on the expression of, of violence. And I would say for some folks, Nate, um, they may not get there, in which case it's not really a counseling solution. Um, but the solution might be more one that involves them being connected uh, to law enforcement or justice, quite frankly, to keep space between them um, and their family and the people who they hurt. So, you know, I, I think here's the challenge, Nate, um, and I don't want to geek out too much, but this, this is an area where we need more research um, we need evaluation, and I think for the people who are tirelessly performing this work, um, I think that we need to make sure those folks um, learning from their work, that needs to be resourced and supported as well. I, I think, unfortunately, one of the challenges is that, um, and you and I talked about this book, Anne Bishop, Becoming an Ally, mm -hmm. but she talks about how the myth of scarcity maintains systems of oppression and inequality. And that, well, you know, we only have enough for this. So, you know, I, I think some, it's easy sometimes to say, well, if, if we're studying evidence-based treatment protocols, how are we going to fund emergency shelters? And my response would be, fund them all. Yeah fund crisis, fund early intervention, fund prevention. And I think that we can't afford not to, because if we want to be able to answer the question that you asked, which is super important, um, and there are, like, let me be clear, there are people and there's some great thinkers um, here in town who are plugging away at this prevention work and changing um, those macro level systems. Uh, those, those folks and the work that they're doing um, is critically important if we want to move the needle on this issue. So 
um, you know, when folks have said to me in the past, well, isn't that going to take away from this? My response is, if this is important enough, fund it all. We need to fund a full continuum of care, which includes treatment to stop the violence from happening again, to early intervention when there's warning signs, to prevention, to health promotion. And I think all orders of government, I'm not letting anyone off the hook tonight, all orders of government play um, a role in that. And every single point along that continuum, be it health promotion, prevention, early intervention and treatment, they all need to be supported. And I think we want to be able to answer that question, Nate. We want to be able to say, this is exactly what works to treat. And, and we have some organizations in the city doing tremendous work around this. And, and I think that that research and that evaluation, um, I, I know that that isn't what comes up when you think about helping people who are imminently at risk, but it's important if we wanna stop more people from ever being impacted by violence in the first place. And isn't there, isn't there an argument? Sure. That, well, I haven't gotten to the argument yet. <laughs> I'm sure there is an argument. You're, you always, you always bring me, you always bring me something. Isn't there an argument to be made that funding all of the things? Like I'm sure there's a lot of people who would, who, yeah. would, who would hear, oh, you just want to throw money at the situation, and you just want to fund all the things, and, and I don't <laughs> throw know. money. Yes. But isn't there an argument to be made that if we were to fund? all of these things mm -hmm. appropriately, if we were to fund mm -hmm. all of the, the research appropriately, that that investment mm -hmm. would save incalculable amounts on the back end. Like, I always go back to the argument that, that if, you know, somebody has to access emergency services, whether it's an ambulance to take them to the hospital mm -hmm. or it's the, the police or whatever the case may be, the what ends up happening is that is there's a significant cost associated with that and if you were to take the the money from one ambulance ride to mm -hmm. one emergency room mm -hmm. to one psychiatric consult to to two if you were to take all of that and front load that on the front end not only are you going to be potentially preventing the need for people to use those pathways mm -hmm. less certainly less frequently but I think that there's probably some sort of algorithm that puts a, a monetary value on human suffering somewhere, and if you can prevent that human suffering, I think that's worth a lot too. Uh, am I am I wrong, or or is is there like for all of the people who are just yeah. like ah we don't have the money? Well, we're spending the money, and that's right. <laughs> so why don't right. we why don't we do some investment on the preventative side, knowing that it's going to suck for a few years, mm -hmm. uh, no, but also being aware that we're going to get a much, much bigger return on investment down the road. Well, you know, Nate, all the things that you just referenced are super expensive. And given your healthcare background, I'm not surprised that those were the examples that you share. But let's talk about court. Let's talk about jail. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's talk about all those responses when a violence when a violent episode occurs. But let's also talk about disruption. When people are going to court, or when people are losing their license, or when people have to choose between going to a treatment group versus showing up for work and picking up a shift, and they're going to go to the group because that's mandated. Uh, but now there's job loss. Let's talk about kiddos whose um, attendance at school is negatively interrupted. 
um, let's talk about the disruption to housing, there really is a far-reaching um, effect. And if we look at the developmental pathways, when a child's developmental pathway um, has the presence of violence in it, you know, John Bowlby, I'm gonna geek out here, but when you think about attached, so, so there's this thing called attachment theory and this um, theorist named John Bowlby, and he talked about how, isn't it interesting that a number of puzzling psychiatric disorders occurring in adults, when you trace back the history of those adults, there was family violence. So even if we call it by another name, um, the mental health concerns that can be present for folks in adulthood whose developmental pathways were unfortunately infiltrated by child maltreatment or observing domestic violence. John Bowlby, and I forget the quote, I should have brought the book with me, but he, he talks about how isn't it puzzling that our psychiatric units, you know, are, are filled um, with adults who as kids were exposed to this. So um, there's a huge cost, and even if it's not one um, that is purely financial in terms of emergency services, uh, you know, for those who would say, you know, well, how are we going to pay for it? I, I think it is important uh, to reframe that, that we, we typically, um, and I think Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does a good job of, of responding to those types of queries when she says, well, how can we only ask, how are we going to pay for it when it's like social issue stuff? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like the price tag associated with other initiatives um, doesn't seem to be questioned uh, to the degree of investing in children. Um, and so th that's a problem. I, I think it speaks, Nate, to, I, I think, a lack of understanding of the cost of not making these investments. And I think even understanding how much these investments cost. Like if somebody said, well, how, how are we going to pay for all these programs? I would say, well, do you actually know how much it costs to run a community-based counseling group for 12 weeks versus one night in a psychiatric unit? I would be, I would be happy to argue that the counter, counter argument should probably sound like, well, we're paying for it anyways. Right. How much would you like to pay and how much human suffering are you willing to work into that equation? But mm. I'm, I'm just a guy who plays with puppets sometimes. And, and, and so. that is a cheeky response as well. You might lose your audience with that With that, I'm very question. good at doing that. <laughs> but, but Nate, I, I think what, what, what you're also talking about when you say human suffering is I think that for some folks, if it hasn't infiltrated their family system yet, um, then it's not a real issue to them. But I would say that as, as I referenced earlier, um, shake any family tree and eventually you're going to see mental health substance use or issues that you may not have been aware of happening in other parts of the tree and 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 then going oh my goodness like i didn't know a lot of these issues nate because they're taboo in nature and just because of people being really hard on themselves and sitting in shame and, and as well, um, not wanting to disrupt their family, not wanting their child's parent to have to leave the home or having a sense of affection for their partner because relationships are complicated or even worrying, is my partner, if they happen to be, have certain characteristics, are they going to be treated fairly by the system? Like, like there's lots of reasons that people don't talk about the occurrence of these issues in their homes 
with extended family. So I would just say, if there's anybody here who says, well, that's not my issue, I haven't seen it and I haven't experienced it, I would say you're fortunate that that, that is your story. Um, but please be mindful of just, um, it's likely the story for somebody else you know, be it distant or close. Um, and, and I myself have had um, friends and family members who I, I, I had no idea what was going on for them until it reached um, a crescendo. So it's in everybody's best interest uh, to have communities uh, that are free from violence. And this is attainable and it is achievable. Um, and maybe that's just the caffeine and my optimism um, colliding with each other. But, but I, I think it is absolutely attainable, Nate, for us to have communities that are free from family violence. I absolutely believe that. 100%. Obviously, this is a tremendously big subject. Yeah. Uh, and there are no easy answers. There are right. no easy solutions. Um, but... Given that the goal of, of, of this episode is to try to, A, get the conversation started to some degree and B, normalize that conversation, mm -hmm. uh, I think that it would be irresponsible if we didn't end it with some sort of uh, call to action. Mm -hmm. So I guess my two big questions for you are, um, A... And, and this is where I'm going to again reference the fact that you're going to provide us a wonderful list of resources <laughs> that we're, we're going to include in the, the, I the show notes. I absolutely will. Um, but A, what should someone do if they are experiencing any of the things that we've talked about? Mm -hmm. Or if they are worried that they might be experiencing some of the things that, the, that we've talked about? I'll throw that one up first and I have a, a follow-up, surprisingly. Sure. Safety first. I, I think um, the first obligation is to keep yourself safe and to keep, um, for, for those who have dependents, um, safety first. And, and I think that sometimes we, we conflate leaving um, with, with um, the only form of, of action. I, I think um, th there could be people watching tonight, Nate, who, um, and I really believe this, people can be very hard on themselves and, and just say, I'm not doing it right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not responding correctly. If, if you have stayed alive and made it to watch an episode like this, chances are you have done something right. You've, you've, you're here for this conversation. So please hear me when I say, and maybe you can't hear your own voice, but hear mine. Um, the fact that you have done what you need to do to stick around and potentially keep your loved ones safe, your kiddos or elderly family members that you're caring for. Um, you are engaging in acts of resistance and survival and strength. And absolutely, there's professionals out there who can help you build on that. Um, but please um, keep yourself safe. So if there's anybody who's at imminent risk right now, and I understand that being in a pandemic, um, that has made it tougher. <laughs> No, it certainly increased the isolation. Right? Yeah. And I think even just whereas, like, it's it's a difficult decision to go to an emergency shelter, but during a pandemic, when you're afraid about being in public spaces, um, that certainly hasn't made it easier. But if you need the help, um, we will post the numbers um, that you can call to get that help. Uh, but certainly if you're facing um, 
imminent threats to your safety, you need to take that seriously, obey your instinct and, and get the help that you need. Um, I would say for anybody who has watched this episode tonight, who might be rethinking um, their behavior and potentially um, they have been violent or abusive to others in their family. Um, I would want them to hear uh, that change is possible and if you want to initiate the process of getting help to change your behavior so that you can show up in healthy ways that allow yourself and those around you to live with dignity, um, I have no doubt that that would be an exceptionally hard phone call to make. Please make it. It's probably the most important one that that person can make, I imagine. Yeah. The last question that I want to ask sort of stems from, the, there's a lot of, lot of us, mm -hmm. I think, uh, that don't have to deal with any of this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I, 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 I'm very fortunate in that my, my home life does not include any of these things. Um, and I'm a big believer, though, that just because a problem isn't affecting you directly, A, doesn't mean that it's not affecting you indirectly, because right. if we go back to the costs, um, but B, also means that you shouldn't do anything. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I know one of the things that, that I try to do is support the Calgary Women's Emergency Shelter whenever I can, because uh, I think that they're an amazing organization. But for anybody who's listening, mm -hmm. um, what would you recommend if, if, if somebody wants to help make a dent in this problem? And I would also argue that this is, I, I just like to say that this is not, I'm going to use the term tragedy porn. Uh, so, oh goodness, right. well, one of the things that I'm always very worried about is that somebody hears about a problem and they go, oh, that sounds really sad. I'm going to give $5, $10, $25, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I've done the work. I'm done now. Okay. Um, okay. And, and we're, that's not, that's just not good enough. So if this issue has resonated with someone and mm -hmm. they do want to, try to contribute towards working towards solutions or, or even just working towards supports for solutions, mm -hmm. how would you recommend that they do that? Well, you've mentioned um, one of the, the larger agencies in the city that deals with this, and they are among several, um, though unfortunately there aren't enough shelter spaces to accommodate the need. Um, so certainly there are a number of different agencies in the city that provide emergency shelters. Um, and there are also some in the surrounding area, and, and we will list all of them uh, because um, some of them focus on different um, uh, clientele. I'm, I'm going to expand your homework yeah. because <laughs> I feel like I can. Yeah. Um, sure. When, when you're graciously providing us the, that list of resources yes. so that we can put it up, would you also be willing to include resources for like Edmonton and rural? Yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. One of the, one of the concerns that I have is that that we take it, it. There's a shortage of resources in Calgary. Yeah. There's a shortage of resources in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And when I think about towns like I don't know, rural, remote, Claire's home, yeah, or like Blairmore or whatever, yeah. like I, I worry. Yes. Like, yeah. If we're experiencing shortages here, and we have we have much more resources than some of these smaller locations, that I, I I hope he said cautiously that there are safety nets for for rural folks too. And if you could include those, yeah, yeah. Be... I mean, not 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 nearly enough uh, for whomever's watching this who can change that. But um, yes, absolutely. So so there are a number of um, different um, 
social profit agencies that are working in this space. Um, and I do think that donating money is certainly a concrete gesture of help. I would also say that there are some other neat advocacy groups in the province who are working um, to say who are influencers in the community and how can we spread the word about family violence um, to engage men and boys, to engage employers, different community groups. Um, so we'll also post the resources for that because not all of this work um, is connected to crisis services. We can support crisis services financially. I know they're often looking for volunteers, um, sitting on a board, um, committees and subcommittees that help those organizations function and plan their fundraising um, endeavors, for example. But there are also other advocacy groups who have prepackaged programs to engage men and boys or different community influencers um, there's also things you can do to educate yourself on just how to recognize, respond, and refer if there's somebody in your community who identifies uh, that they're unsafe. And I think for those who are working in, as employers or university instructors or teachers or a soccer coach, um, there are some websites and again, great community groups that will say, here are the phone numbers, here's how to respond. There's a hand gesture uh, that was developed at the beginning of the pandemic so that people could um, discreetly indicate if they need help. Uh, we also know that some businesses have taken it upon themselves to be refuges. So I think all of those things are great in learning how to recognize, respond, um, and refer or engage other services. We also want to change attitudes and tackle belief systems uh, that make it tough for people to step forward or we wanna tackle those attitudes that make it easier for people to see violence as acceptable. We want to tackle those attitudes and make it really, really difficult uh, for uh, violence to be accepted. And part of that, if we're thinking about this in a more positive lens, is how do we create communities um, of equity and equality and dignity and peace? And so um, I think if we bump it up another level, you're, you dabble in politics every so often. No, I'm done. You, I'm and and nope. hang on, and nope, you, nope, nope. now hang on, I've seen you who you've had as guests, so, so you have the ear, you have the ear of people who can operate at that macro level, Mr. Pike. <laughs> I, 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 I critique politics now, is what I do. <laughs> Okay, so you have a show and you get to critique it on your show. There might be people watching your show who say, well, I'm never going to have like 10,000 social media followers. So maybe I'm not a political influencer. Okay, but you could still reach out to your elected officials and say, what are your thoughts on housing? I mean, domestic violence is one of the biggest drivers for women into homelessness. So whether we call it by the name of family violence or its other variations, we can try and influence the conversation of our elected officials. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on housing. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on women's economic empowerment. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on social policies that reduce the likelihood of kiddos um, growing up in communities that are fraught with violence or you know housing insecurity and instability, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know that that's tough to do when it's not an election year. <laughs> I would, I would be happy to anyways. argue. I would be happy to argue. I'll just okay, throw this out please. here. Okay, uh, please. Because I have opinions. 
Um, I've noticed. <laughs> I would be happy to argue that the election year is a is a good time to get the the broad strokes mm-hmm. of of what a politician or or somebody who's running for elected office is willing to commit to. Sure. But I would also be willing to argue that one of the fundamental roles of the electorate is to say, "Hey, remember how you said?" That's right. What have, <laughs> That's what right. Have you, what have you done for me lately? That's right. Um, because one of the the challenges that I think we run into, especially during election cycles, is that we have politicians and, and people who are running for political office who will say almost anything mm. in order to to yeah. get into that position. And if the electorate chooses to check out in those four year spaces in between, uh, or perhaps two two years if we're talking federally. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if someone chooses to check out during those times and say, well, they promised, so I guess they're going to do it, then that enables those people who are just as human as the rest of us right. and have competing interests and their own frailties and failures, uh, it allows them to for things to fall off their radar. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about is issues as important as the ones that we're talking about today, mm-hmm. that's where I think that there's there's value in in people saying, hey... Remember how you said in the election that you were gonna you were gonna do stuff about affordable housing? That's right. It doesn't seem like you've done it yet. That's right. That's and right. I'd like to know why. That's right. That's Detail. right. And and you, you know Nate, and this is me being naive, but it's also about me. Just I I think if we want to manifest positive things in our communities, we we have got to be unencumbered. <laughs> By negativity, and and I mean this um, sincerely. You know, talk about the city you want, talk about the province you want, and and for me, I I fundamentally believe that we can have communities um, free from violence, and I think it's okay for us to say, um, at least at the provincial and federal level, we we all accept, I think, as voters, that there's different political teams and their jerseys are different colors, but let but let's be clear. <laughs> When it comes to the safety of a child, not a partisan issue. And I think yeah. if we as an electorate can come together and say, we don't care which color of jersey has the most seats, but there are some issues that we will no longer accept as being partisan. So the welfare of children is not a partisan issue. Um, the safety of Indigenous women is not a partisan issue. I think there should be some issues where we all just agree regardless of who happens to be in power at the time, one child who's abused is one too many. One woman who has to flee her home because of the threat of violence is one too many. One elderly person who ends up in hospital black and blue and the social work staff don't know what to do is one too many. I I think to your point, Nate, let's rock the boat, but I think it's okay for all of us, regardless of our political persuasion, to say there are some issues where we can take an ideological slant, but not around issues of lethality. Yeah, and I would, I would be happy to say that if, if a politician is able to stand, or an elected official or whatever, is able to stand up in front of you and say, well, this isn't really my problem, I very rarely swear on this show. But <laughs> Don't do I'm, it. I'm going to. I feel like the only response to that is, fuck you, it is your problem. 
um, mm. because it's everybody's problem. And if you're going to stand there and, and take a position of convenience that you don't have to deal with it because mm. ah, it's not not my jam, you, you, you ran for this, so it is your jam because if it affects even a single one of your constituents, then it is. And, and to your point, if, if we're going to get into a place where we're arguing about the, the validity of kids being beaten, also fuck you. <laughs> so my parents might watch this. So I won't I'm use sorry, the I'm parents. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, mom and dad, I'm, I apologize. Lana didn't say it, I did. My, he said My parents he said, be the disappointed ones. Well, but you know, Nate, and, 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 and you know, all kidding aside, all kidding aside, I, I do think um, there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in, in our political discourse right now. And um, I think that budgets are important. Of course, I think that, you know, fiduciary responsibilities are important. But when we're talking about um, the welfare of, of, of our citizens, um, I, I think that there are just some issues that eclipse political ideology. I mean, this is probably why I'll never get elected. <laughs> but, but to me, um, I, I am that person who will, because to your point, we got a couple of, well, we have one we know coming up in 2023 and, and another one possibly coming up in 2023. But, but to me, to me I, I think that where we can all agree, where we can all agree and I think our political system will be better for it, is when we say these issues are off limits to partisan bickering. And I am gonna use that word bickering. You and I have both worked in acute care settings. So I won't speak for your experience as a first responder, but I will speak to mine right now as sitting with people who have experienced um, sexual assault, family violence, child abuse. We can do better. Yeah. as a city and as a province. Um, and like I said, I, I think rather than talking about shortcomings and failures and what you don't want, let's elevate this conversation and start to talk about how incoming governments all orders, guess what we want? We want communities free from violence. We can debate property tax um, <laughs> and all those things afterwards. Um, but I think the the... The re like imagine you know for me not having a need for a month like this. I I think that would be my ideal future, um, and I understand that there are many competing interests that elected officials have to deal with. But I think if we want to bump up at that macro level, um, to the degree possible, I think people watching your show can influence the conversation by sending an email. <laughs> so I think you don't have to do everything <laughs> to do something, and. I'm thinking of that movie that Ashton Kutcher starred in, The Butterfly Effect. Oh, um, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say little, you know, um, if everybody is doing what is within their span of control and where they feel like they can make an impact that is meaningful to them, it doesn't have to be a massive gesture to create that ripple effect and gain the momentum um, to create big change. I, I would have preferred if you went with pay it forward as opposed to... Uh, no, you know, you're right. And, and, I and I apologize. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm not... You're right. That probably was a horrible film reference. But your viewers get what I was I'm, talking about. I'm not about. saying that I've disappointed you as a, <laughs> as a person right now. But you're saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Pass 
passive aggressively. There we go. Okay, my apologies. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a film buff like Mr. Pike here is <laughs> apparently. So Nate, yeah, I think that every but like there's so much you can do, and you don't have to do everything. My call to action is figure out what you can do and then do it. And like, like no one person owns every single piece of this, but I think every person has it within them, whether it's um, learning what those hand gestures are or maybe donating five bucks or volunteering or reaching out to a politician or even addressing issues of food insecurity. Go put some hampers to, you know, we have the holidays coming up, support the food bank. Um, there, there's lots of, of, of things you can do um, and you don't have to do all of it. My call to action for your viewers tonight would be um, allow yourself to have a moment of reflection of what you might like to do and where you see yourself and then go out and do it and, and know that you may not see the direct impact, but it doesn't mean you haven't made one and chances are you have. Awesome. Lana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation tonight. I want to thank you so much for the insight that you brought to the table. Uh, yes. And for anybody who's listening or watching the show, we're going to include the resources that Lana is going to provide us, not only yeah. in the, the next couple of minutes after the, the talking is done, but we're also going to include it in the show notes. And if you are somebody who thinks that you need help, reach out for help. And if you know somebody who you think needs help, don't be afraid to have that conversation because one of the biggest barriers that I think that we have is too often we're afraid to have difficult conversations and these sorts of things flourish uh, in silence.